the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us in this new year, 2018. And I suppose I should begin by saying Happy New Year. Looking forward to 12 wonderful months that are better than the 12 previous months. One can always hope anyway. Well, Clark Hilton is here engineering. James Blend is producing, and it's good to be back in studio after about a week and a half vacation uh, that spanned Christmas and New Year. So I'm refreshed and ready to go. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow in national security affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about the protests in Iran. They started December the 28th. They have continued. They're protesting inflation, government corruption, overall mishandling of economic policies. But where are they likely to go? And were the president's tweets constructive? And what impact, if any, are they likely to have on what's happening there. There's been some rumor that the um, uh, that the uh, uprising has been put down and that it's come to an end. We'll find out if that's uh, the case as well. We're also going to talk with Lois Anderson. She's the new executive director of Oregon Right to Life, but she's not new to the organization. She has served in various capacities over many years. And as her predecessor stepped down uh, this fall, she has stepped up. And we'll talk with her about her vision for the future of Oregon Right to Life and uh, the pro-life movement here in the state of Oregon. And we'll also talk about the memorial rally and march that's coming up on, su- on Sunday, January the 14th at the Pioneer Courthouse Square. Um, and some other issues surrounding uh, pro-life matters here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, Finally, in the latter part of the 5 o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Deanna Wallace. She is an attorney, a staff attorney with uh, Americans United for Life. We'll talk about Planned Parenthood's latest annual report and what that tells us about their primary focus, their funding, and the impact they're having uh, on abortion. They've been much in the news in 2017. We'll find out. Uh, what's likely to to um, happen in 2018 as they are seeking to expand their abortion practice and others are seeking to defund them and to uh, and to contract their influence uh, on the culture. So Deanne Wallace will join us later in the five o'clock hour. Well, of course, there's a lot going on and it didn't take long after the holidays for things to begin to heat up once again. The Senate's uh, newest members were sworn in today. Uh, they're both Democrats. And that, of course, has had an impact on the, the uh, Republican majority in the U.S. Senate. Uh, Doug Jones of Alabama, Minnesota's Tina Smith. They both took their oaths of office earlier today. Jones, as you'll recall, won a, a bruising special election against Roy uh, Moore. And uh, he was appointed to temporarily replace the disgraced former lawmaker Al Franken. Uh, Both were sworn in by the vice president earlier today. The 63-year-old Jones, who was accompanied on the uh, Senate floor by his family and former Vice President Joe Biden, will occupy the Senate seat that was left open by Republican Jeff Sessions, who last year became U.S. Attorney General. His stunning victory uh, narrowed the GOP's Senate majority to 51 Uh, And 49. So that was uh, something of a blow. And this, of course, has been 
uh, several decades before a Democrat, or rather since a Democrat, has won an election there. These were extraordinary circumstances. Whether or not he could win re-election against a more credible Republican candidate remains to be seen. But for now, he is seated. Uh, as Jeff Sessions' replacement. He arrives after one of the most controversial special uh, Senate elections in recent history. He defeated uh, Judge Moore, whose general election bid was uh, toppled in the closing weeks by allegations of sexual misconduct earlier in his political career, when he was uh, apparently in his 30s. Republicans had held that seat for roughly 25 years before Moore, a firebrand conservative, lost in mid-December. That seat is up for re-election again in 2020. Republican Luther Strange occupied the seat until Jones' victory. Strange, as the preferred candidate among Washington Republicans, lost a primary bid against Moore to keep the seat for the GOP. Jones is a former federal prosecutor. He vowed to make a top priority of getting long-term funding for CHIP, which is the Children's Health Insurance Program. Uh, that's the uh, the formal title of it. Congress, as part of the temporary spending bill it passed last month, gave $3 billion to restart the program and keep it running through March. Congressional Democrats and Republicans support the program, which ran out of money in September of last year, but the parties disagree over how to keep it going. Well, Jones recently told... Um, News source that the that he supports liberal backed issues like continued to protections for young illegal immigrants and not using taxpayer money for a U.S. Mexico border wall. But he suggested he wanted to uh, wait until being sworn in before taking on such complicated issues. Still, he has acknowledged winning in conservative leaning Alabama with bipartisan support has ex- uh, has. Uh, Uh, expressing a willingness to find common ground with congressional Republicans on legislative issues if he wants to be reelected. The 59-year-old Smith was Minnesota's lieutenant governor until appointed last month by Democratic Governor Mark Dayton to serve in place of Franken, who resigned uh, earlier. He left Congress uh, last month and officially resigned on Tuesday amid allegations of sexual misconduct. He apologized but says he has a different recollection of at least some of those encounters. Smith said um, when appointed that she intends to uh, compete in the special election in November to serve the final two years of Franken's term. She's considered a liberal Democrat and expected to uh, largely support Senate Democratic leadership's agenda. Former Minnesota GOP Rep- uh, Representative Michelle Bachman added some early drama to the upcoming race when she expressed interest in running for that seat. Whether or not she actually will, we'll just have to wait and see. Meanwhile, Utah Senator Orrin Hatch, who's the longest serving GOP senator, announced today uh, that rather Tuesday that he would not seek reelection in 2018, opening up a possible pathway to the political resurrection of 2012 Republican presidential nominee Mitt Romney. Hatch is 83. He first uh, took his seat in 1977. He's been debating uh, whether or not to run again. President Trump had publicly beseeched him not to retire, perhaps anticipating that Mitt Romney would run and win. They are at least uh, have been arch uh, enemies. In a video statement released on Tuesday, Hatch said that he would vacate his seat at the end of his term. An announcement from Senator Orrin Hatch um, was uh, not met with much surprise given his age. I was an amateur boxer in my youth, he said, and I uh, brought that fighting spirit with me to Washington. But every good fighter knows when to hang up the gloves. And for me, that time is soon approaching. Romney, a former governor of Massachusetts and a vocal critic of the president, is widely 
reported to be considering running for Hatch's seat. In a statement, Romney said Hatch had represented the interests of Utah with distinction and honor. The move is a blow for Trump. He pushed Hatch to stay on in a visit uh, in Utah in December. We hope you will continue to serve your state and your country in the Senate for a very long time to come, Trump said. Hatch has been a strong supporter of the president's agenda and as chairman of the Senate Finance Committee was a key player in getting the tax reform bill passed in December. White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders said at the uh, daily press briefing on Tuesday that Trump was very sad to see Hutch leave, or rather Hatch leave, and perhaps sadder to consider that Mitt Romney may replace him. The president certainly has the greatest and deepest amount of respect for Senator Hatch and his uh, over four decades of experience in the Senate, Sanders said at that conference. Uh, He is particularly thankful for the senator's leadership and massive effort that he played and the role that he played in getting the tax cut and reform package passed, end quote. Well, in his statement, Hatch noted that he had uh, authored more bills than became law than any living member of Congress. He also hailed the passage of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act as one of his proudest legislative achievements. I'm deeply grateful for the privilege you've given me to serve as your senator these last four decades, he said in a statement. I may be leaving the Senate, but the next chapter in my public service is just beginning. He said he wanted to spend more time with his uh, family, children, grandchildren, and more uh, importantly, with his wife. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, we're going to talk with Peter Brooks. He's a senior fellow in National Security Affairs. We're going to talk about what's happening in Iran and whether or not this is a replay of 2009 or if it's going to fizzle like um, earlier um, efforts to uh, oppose the leadership there. Peter Brooks, next on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 21 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Iran has been uh, rocked by a wave of protests against the Islamist regime since the 28th of last month. Popular demonstrations ignited by smoldering resentment about Iran's mismanagement of their economy. It escalated to political denunciations of Tehran's rulers. President Trump was quick to offer support to the protesters in a series of tweets. And uh, here to talk with us about about what's happening there or what happened, if it's uh, now died down, as some are suggesting, is Peter Brooks. He's Senior Fellow in National Security Affairs at the Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good to be with you. Now, what's happening in Iran right now? Because I'm hearing rumors that uh, that it's over uh, and what, uh, what's been happening since the 28th has now officially died down. Well, I, we're, we're, no, neither of us know, right? <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, it's, 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 late in, it's late at night in Iran. Uh, you know, the, the information that comes out of there is often tainted by the government. Uh, there's no free flow of, of information. Uh, there was a large counter or a pro-government mm-hmm. uh, demonstration today. Um, so I think we're going to have to see what happens uh, when the day opens uh, tomorrow in Iran. I don't know how you can say that demonstration is officially over. This was, this was pretty widespread, went far outside the city. The last one in 2009, last major one in 2009, was essentially limited to the major cities. But this one spread into the rural areas as well, which tends to be more pro-government. Uh, but there's no doubt that the uh, the regime is going to want to crack down and end this as soon as possible. What was the mitigating event that led to this latest uh, uh, surge in protests? Well, the Iranian people are generally unhappy uh, with their economic situation. You said it in the lead in here. I mean, you know, 1979, when the Islamic Revolution took place, 
uh, Iran was the most advanced economy in the Middle East. Uh, today, it's, it's rife with problems, despite the tremendous amount of uh, energy resources it has. I mean, Iran is one of the world's largest oil and natural gas producers. Uh, the Iranian people, you know, live in a repressive society, and now they've made it harder for them economically. We've seen a, a, a increase in gas prices, an increase in uh, basic food, the cost of basic food supplies. Uh, people on pensions are getting less money. So in this case, it wasn't necessarily ideological. It was pretty pretty basic, but it touched off a a, a spark about all the other issues that have been bothering the Iranian people for a long time. They, they live in a re- politically repressive, socially repressive, and economically repressive uh, uh, situation. So uh, this is uh, this is something that I think is is a, a tinderbox, and the Iranian government has not provided in the way they said they would. Now, some of the earlier uh, protests in Mashhad were reportedly organized by ultra hardline regime supporters that were opposed to Rouhani. Uh, and they may have des- designed this, uh, at least their earlier protest, to undermine his authority. Do we know who is behind this, if there's some organization or, or any uh, organization at all, if it's college students, or is this just a spontaneous eruption of discontent? I think it started, It started. I mean, it, there's going to be, a, a, if it does end, I mean, you know, we also thought the, the uh, Arab Spring would be over pretty quickly, too. Mm-hmm. And see, we're still dealing with the consequences of that. I mean, there'll be a, there'll be a postmortem, but once again, it's very difficult to get accurate information out of Iran, uh, even for academics and people who study these sort of things. But I think it, would, it's, it may have been started by that group. That may be a rumor. Uh, but it, once again, once that it started, it moved into other uh, elements of the society. The 2009 uh, protests were largely uh, urban elites, and this one moved out into the rural areas, touched a, a great number of people. And, of course, the biggest uh, nightmare uh, for the current regime is a counter-revolution to their revolution in 1979, perpetrated this time by people of the same age they were in 1979, mm-hmm. uh, liberating. And many of these people, you know, the people, the leaders today, I mean, Ahmadinejad, who is not currently the president but had been, is probably a name many people know, uh, he was one of the student uh, leaders in 1979. Uh, now they're a little bit longer in tooth, but, and they worry about the same thing with the, with the college students here, uh, people with a lot of energy, uh, and maybe maybe thoughtful, unhappy with their unhappy with their situation, and see a, a counter revolution to the Islamic Revolution of 1979. What role does the Revolutionary Guard play in crushing protests? And we know that they were successful in 2009 at doing that. Do they still uh, have enough uh, bear enough weight that they would be called upon, or independently would put an end to any effort uh, for a counter revolution? Well, you know, the the, uh, the security forces are in any uh, dictatorship, which Iran is, um, there there are plenty of them, uh, and they act with impunity. Uh, that goes from goes from the Revolutionary Guard Corps, which are the guardians of the revolution, uh, to you know street mobs that are organized uh, by the government called Basijis. Uh, these are people who go out and, and you know rough up people they feel are not uh, perhaps socially virtuous. Or for or for other reasons, they you know they but they look like regular folks. They don't look like they're part of the security forces. Uh, there's the intelligence forces. So I mean, there's there and there's the armed forces too. I mean, there's a whole number of layers of security forces that are there 
operating in support of the of the regime. So it doesn't have to be the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Uh, the Revolutionary Guard Corps was probably not the ones uh, that organized the the counter protests to the uh, to the ongoing week long or so protests. I mean, this was arranged by the government and other security forces um, to uh, arrange people. To, I, I'm sure it was government orchestrated. There's no doubt in my mind about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it, it could be any number of elements of the Iranian security forces that cracked down. In 2009, the previous administration uh, did not speak to the Iranian uh, protesters. Uh, this time around, Donald Trump has uh, tweeted um, and has been very vociferous about uh, his support of their efforts to oppose the regime. What caution should he exercise in weighing in and, and what he says and whether uh, he stands behind the, the organizers of this, um, this uprising? Well, I was critical of Obama in, in 2009, uh, but, in, you know, and I, I think I'm, in fairness to him, I think his uh, supporters would say he was worried about the nuclear uh, issue. He was trying to turn the page on U.S.-Iranian relations, which had been so difficult. He sent letters to the president uh, for their New Year celebration in 2009. You know, he made the speech in Cairo. He was trying to make efforts. He thought he could change the course, uh, bend the arc of history between the U.S. Uh, and Iran. But I, I also think that the United States, it's incumbent upon us to stand up for human rights and human values. Uh, and that includes the right of people to have certain basic uh, liberties uh, that we sometimes take for granted here, such as assembly and speech and, and religion. Uh, and that are that are denied the people of Iran by a, a theocratic or repressive a repressive government. So I think the president is right to speak out, and I think we should see more uh, public opinion leaders speaking out about this, and not only in the United States but around the world. And I hope that the Europeans and the major democratic capitals will will speak up as 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 well. We're going to have to see if they're willing to do that. They have interests there that are maybe different uh, different from ours, but uh, still I think it's incumbent upon. Uh, people to stand up for democratic uh, ideals. I mean, I don't think democracy is an Eastern or Western value. I think it's a universal value, and I think it's something the United States should stand for. Absolutely. Peter Brooks, thank you so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me Appreciate it very much. Uh, One of Mr. Brooks' colleagues, James Phillips, points out that Washington must continue to drive up the long-term political, economic, and military costs of Iran's military interventions in Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. It should underscore that the regime's economic mismanagement, corruption, and support for terrorism and the Islamic Revolution, which provoked sanctions, have exacerbated Iran's economic problems. U.S. policy should also highlight and denounce the regime's repression and human rights abuses, but the protests might soon be quelled or hijacked. Washington should support the right of Iranians to challenge the heavy-handed repression and corruption of a tyrannical regime, but it should hold off on endorsing specific opposition leaders or movements until their character and goals are assessed. Until then, the Trump administration should do its best to publicize and promote the legitimate political and economic grievances of frustrated Iranians and support their efforts to recover freedom from an Islamist dictatorship that depends on thugs to suppress its own people. And one of the Things that I think uh, contributed to all of this, or the, some uh, some financial numbers were released just uh, days before the protests began on the 23rd. Their interventions, military and otherwise, in Syria, Iraq, and Yemen uh, incensed uh, the people there, given the fact that uh, so much of uh, what they need is not being addressed in Iran. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk with Lois Anderson. She's the new executive director of Oregon Right to Life. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Good afternoon and welcome back. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Now, some of you might remember back in the day, I was a guest here at KPDQ when Lou Davies was the host. I was speaking on behalf of Oregon Right to Life and I was uh, being interviewed. And at the uh, conclusion of that interview, I was invited by the general manager to come to his office for a conversation, which was a little frightening because I was sure he was going to tell me, don't ever come back. Well, long story short, he asked if I was interested in doing radio, and I said yes. Well, Oregon Right to Life has held a special place in my heart. In fact, I cut my teeth in pro-life work with Oregon Right to Life in the first effort to end state-funded abortion. Gail Atterbury, who's been the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, has been a guest on this program many times as we followed the work, the effective influence that they've had here in the state. And it's really been remarkable over these many years to see how um, a pro-life movement in a state like Oregon could be so successful. Well, the baton has been passed, and there's a new executive director. She's not new to the organization. She has served in a variety of capacities, but Lois Anderson is the new executive director. Since 1999, she's been a key part of the strategy and execution of Oregon Right to Life's efforts to support pro-life Oregonians with tools and resources and to amplify your voice through advocacy. She served as director of political operations for about 17 years, prior to assuming her current role as executive director. She was also instrumental in launching Oregon Right to Life's overhaul digital communication efforts in 2014 and the organization's rebranding in 2016. She graduated from Portland State University Honors Program with a Bachelor of Arts in Science. She lives in Kaiser, uh, husband and kids, and she joins us today to talk about uh, her new capacity at Oregon Right to Life as their executive director. First of all, Lois, congratulations. Oh, well, thank you, Jardine. It's very exciting to be on the radio with you. Well, it's been fun to kind of watch you come up through the ranks, if you will, um, because <laughs> you've been you've been working very hard for many years. But I I'm delighted that you have uh, taken the role, the reins of leadership. And I know that there's going to be effective work continuing with Oregon Right to Life. Now, as you have assumed uh, this fall, really, uh, the role of executive director, what's your vision for Oregon Right to Life moving forward? Well, um, you you uh, referred a little bit to it in your introduction, which is very generous. Thank you for that. I um, one, We have three main areas, uh, I think, where Oregon Right to Life really shines. Um, and one of those is to inform and inspire. And this is both for pro-life people, and we're also hoping to reach out to people who are wondering, what is this whole pro-life thing? And why are they still around after 45 years um, to engage people to think about the injustice of abortion, what is an abortion, what actually happens, um, and giving them information, but also to inspire pro-life people to make sure that they know the most update, up-to-date information. We spend time doing that here. And then also um, we want to equip pro-life people, there are, as you know this, Georgine, thousands of people around Oregon who are working every day in their communities. They're volunteering at pregnancy resource centers. They're um, writing letters to the editor. They're calling up their legislators. They're reaching out to um, uh, women in their communities who are facing unplanned pregnancies. There's all kinds of things that they're doing. They're going to their church and um, being active there. And we want to give them um, the best equipment, the best materials, the little feet pins, the handouts, the information that they need to do their job in their community. And every community is different. Every community has different needs, and they're the best ones to decide that. And then we advocate 
at the Capitol, which is one of the things that we spend a lot of time doing, which also means we've got to be involved in campaigns. So, you know, that's kind of my wheelhouse and where mm-hmm. I came from. Um, and I just, it has never been more important. I know we hear that every year. It's like, oh, this is the most important election. This is the most important legislative session. But I have to tell you, we are facing this onslaught. Um, and for folks that have been paying attention, the end-of-life stuff and this horrible abortion bill that passed last session, and we are, I just want to assure people that we are there and we're working very hard, and when we are asking you to do something, it's because we really need your help. So that, those are the kind of a long answer, but those are the things that the vision that I see is just um, we want to help individual people as they're active in their communities, but then we need to take that action and that voice and amplify it at the Capitol because uh, we need to be there. Now, Oregon was one of the first states to legalize abortion on demand, and it may be surprising for many of our listeners to hear that the number of abortions that are performed in Oregon is down, that we are more pro-life today than we were, say, two decades ago. Uh, in terms of people who are rejecting abortion on demand as it has been um, uh, endorsed uh, across the country um, right. for, for a, a very long time. But I think a lot of people are discouraged and thinking, well, what difference the law stands? What difference can I make? What you described is uh, the, the possibility to make an impact uh, on our community at the state level, as well as in our own neighborhoods and our workplaces and private relationships. And just as we're um, living life, that we can make a, an impact. Absolutely. And I actually think that's one of the reasons why we see such um, an onslaught at the Capitol is because I think they know they're losing. Um, they see the numbers just like we do, and they know that people are choosing life. And they may not be connecting that to their political activity. But honestly, like, I don't care about that. If you, if you are pregnant um, and in a, in a situation in your family where there's a baby in danger of abortion and you choose to give that baby life, that's a huge victory mm-hmm. right there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Oregon Right to Life has been uh, functioning here in the state of Oregon for many, many years. And on uh, Sunday, the 14th of January, there's going to be a uh, memorial and uh, March, and I appreciated one of the blog posts that you uh, that you um, submitted on December the fifth. And the question that you pose is, why do we march? Uh, why is it important for people to take an afternoon in a on a January with its cold and blustery, and stand in Pioneer Courthouse Square, for example? And simply uh, remember those whose lives were taken by abortion and draw attention to what's uh, what's happening across the country. Why is it important and why still do it? Well, and thank you. You've been out there with us as well for for many years. And um, I've really been struck by this idea uh, of bearing witness. And I I did um, refer to it in my yes. blog, you know, some of the great um, human rights. Uh, fighters in our in our uh, history, one of the things that they most effective things they did was just told the truth. They just stood up and told the truth. They gave um, a reason why there was this a human abuse. They told human rights abuse, and that's what we're doing when we're we're gathering in the middle, the living room of Portland, Oregon, Oregon's largest city. And we are saying we remember these children that have lost their lives to abortion, and we're committing to another year. Maybe it'll be the last year 
Um, I think we're always hope. Pro-lifers are hopeful, and uh, we're going to commit to each other to another year of fighting the injustice of abortion. And I, that's why we do it. And it is, it is important standing, standing up um, and acknowledging the the lives that have lost and the injustice that happens to the rest of us is. It's just a very powerful thing to do. Yeah, bearing witness to the evil, the injustice, and the cruelty of abortion. I love that you write, injustice thrives on apathy and secrecy. While it can appear passive, bearing witness is the most important role that we have. I believe that with all my heart and mind. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You make reference to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and William Wilberforce. These are individuals we admire and respect, but we may have forgotten what it cost them to ultimately see victory. Um, that they had to persist over a very long period of time before uh, the the very thing that and Dietrich Bonhoeffer never did have the chance to see it, but before uh, change came, it required a great deal of them over a long period of time. Yes, it did. And someone uh, commented to me or emailed me after that um, and mentioned David Delayden, yes. who is with the Center for Medical Progress, and he's the one that has done these undercover videos in Planned Parenthood and at abortion uh, vendor conferences basically and exposed this baby part trafficking industry that's happening in the country and it's happening right here in Oregon and he he is suffering you know he financially mm-hmm. and his reputation and there's a lot of pressure on him yet he still stands strong and I think he's a he's a modern day example for us but we can be that way in our own communities and our families um, it, it's not we do have these models throughout history and in, in scripture, I mean, we're given those, those stories, but there are also thousands of and probably millions of individual stories of people who have done the same thing on a much smaller scale. And all of that activity saves lives. And that's what we're about. We're about saving human life. One of the things I would encourage our listeners to take full advantage of is the website, Oregon Right to Life's website. Sometimes we feel ill-equipped. I'm not sure how to uh, discuss the issue. I'm not sure what's going on, but the website provides great up-to-date information about opportunities to come together with other pro-life people to uh, work in our community to just better understand the issue so that we can articulate it in an effective way. And uh, I, I would commend our, our listeners to the website to become better informed and also become better connected with the pro-life community. You might be surprised to learn is uh, is closer to home than you think. Yeah, that's true. And thank you. Um, we have worked very hard and continue to to make that site um, a useful tool for people. Now, we're going to take a break here in just a moment, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking this afternoon with uh, Lois Anderson. She's the new executive director of Oregon Right to Life, and we are blessed to have her in that leadership position. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We made a veiled reference to the Roe versus Wade Memorial and March. That's coming up on January the 14th at uh, Pioneer Courthouse Square here in Portland. And you are invited to attend. It begins at 2.30. Archbishop Alexander Sample of the Archdiocese of Portland will be there. Nicole Bentz, the Northwest Regional Director of Students for Life, will be speaking. Carly Olson, the 2016 winner of the National National Right to Live June B. Thompson Oratory Contest will be speaking as well. And we would love to have you come stand with us and bear witness uh, to the injustice that continues in our community and all across uh, all across the country. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I'm um, I'm part of the old guard. 
1973, I was a junior in high school, but it wasn't until I was uh, in the senior year of college and the year following that I, I came to understand what uh, Roe versus Wade was really all about and what abortion was. And I began working in the pro-life movement uh, shortly thereafter. One of the things that encourages me about the uh, Roe versus Wade Memorial and March are the number of, uh, of young people who are now outspoken uh, pro-lifers. They are very well educated. Uh, they're they're fearless, it seems to me, and they're very active in their respective uh, communities. Um, talk a little bit about the uh, the role that young people are now playing in taking up the gauntlet, if you will, of the pro-life movement. Well, it, it is so encouraging, and I think we've seen a real increase in the number of students and younger people that attend not just our memorial in March, but all of our events. Mm-hmm. I I think one of, you know, I've, I interact a lot with young people. It's one of my favorite parts of this job and, and to see their, their passion. Um, and they really are, it's their friends who are the target of the abortion industry. And so I think that their passion really is fueled by seeing the impact of abortion on demand among their peers. And they are, they're active on their campuses. One of the reasons why we always love to have a Students for Life speaker at our events, um, because it's a wonderful organization, it's a national organization, and they specialize in organizing students on campus. And they do these phenomenal outreaches um, with materials that get uh, past the sort of pro-life, pro-abortion, pro-choice labels, and ask really important questions mm-hmm. about the violence of abortion. Why do we need Planned Parenthood? And so they're doing a great job, and we want to network with them and, and encourage them. And that's where, you know, that um, do, there's a lot of brain research that happens, and one of the things that's really stood out to me is the first thing you hear about an issue or a person or anything is kind of filed first in your brain, and everything after that has to get through that first piece of information. So it's really important for our uh, pro-life young people to be involved and to be trained and to be doing these active outreaches because we have that opportunity to be the first piece of information that someone learns about abortion. Um, and so that's what the, we put a high priority on that. We have a Camp Joshua, which actually has been going for almost 20 years, where we um, bring students together from all over the state for four days and give them um, information and training and networking. Um, they usually bond quite tightly by the end of the four days. And uh, now we have people that are professionals, they uh, have been students and gone on to have groups at their campuses. They've, some of them have even um, gone into pro-life work full-time. And so this is, it's common to say it's the future of the movement. I like to say it's the present of the movement. Yeah, yeah. And they will boldly declare abortion ends with our generation. So they are determined yeah. to have an impact that will ultimately change the course of of our nation's uh, public policy. Now, it, it is exciting to see these young people. It's it's uh, exhilarating to hear them speak. But for the rest of us who perhaps don't fall into that category, we may not be as well informed. We may not be um, as well equipped to address the issues as they come it, up in the course of uh, normal conversation. You find out that a neighbor's daughter is pregnant and she's contemplating abortion. What do I say? Uh, you also help to uh, equip through local chapters and other resources uh, pro-lifers who want to be able to speak uh, well and uh, effectively with, you know, people they uh, they come in contact with on this issue. Mm-hmm. 
we we do absolutely and we have materials and we do we have our conference every year which is in portland and i know sometimes it's hard for people to come but we will record most of the main sessions and so people can uh, we post them on our youtube channel so there's a lot of uh, access to information there and some very good training if you're interested in that um, and that, those are the, the resources that we try to constantly get out there for people. And we're always available. If someone does have a situation and they don't know what to do and maybe they don't have contact with a local chapter or person, they can always email us, call us, post a Facebook question. Um, that's one of the things we're here for is to talk through those kind of situations with people. We're happy to do it. Now, I want to focus uh, once again on the memorial and march that's coming up on January the 14th. For listeners who have never been but are thinking, perhaps this will be the year that I'm going to be a part of uh, this event, what might they expect? Well, the, we start about 2 o'clock with um, some great music, and people can gather. There are tables there of uh, other pro-life organizations and Oregon Rights Life Education Foundation that have information. So you can come uh, you can come a little bit early, and there's plenty to do. And um, then we start off with uh, a very somber memorial that uh, – is a chime for each million of lives that have been lost. And uh, we take some take a moment to really acknowledge those lives. And then we just have our roundup of speakers, and we're done in about an hour. Um, and then we march. We're going to walk from Pioneer Crosshouse Square down to the waterfront and then back up. Some people don't do it. You don't have to. We're not going <laughs> to make you march if you don't want to. But it's a, it's a fun activity to do after you've kind of been standing there. And we've done it in all kinds of weather. Yep. There's been rain. There's been sleet. There's been gorgeous sunny days. It doesn't matter. We still gather at the square. And it just is... Um, it's just a feeling of com- com- ah, camaraderie, yes. camaraderie um, and fellowship that there's just no other substitute for it to look around and see all those faces, young and old, all different colors, all different economic backgrounds. Um, it, this, this movement and this fight against evil and injustice unifies us, and it, it's a really wonderful experience. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people who would say, I lack the courage, this is a great place to start. You come and stand with a group of like-minded people who are there to bear witness, um, to remember, and then to take a march as a, a group. It's a it's a peaceful, and I, I would go so far as to say it's a fun a- event because um, it's encouraging and we uh, we get kind of an update of what's going on around us, and, and uh, it's a great place to start. Uh, making your first pro-life profession publicly. So I would encourage you to join us at Pioneer Courthouse Square. Again, that's uh, on Sunday, January the 14th, the Memorial and March. And uh, you are invited to show up at around 2 o'clock. Things begin in earnest at uh, 2.30. There'll be music and balloons and all kinds of stuff that just marks the occasion where we remember and then uh, uh, let our neighbors know where we stand on on this uh, divisive issue. Now, one of the things that I had heard over the years is that once uh, the abortion pill was legalized, that that would make the pro-life movement essentially uh, obsolete, that uh, when an abortion clinic was no longer uh, the the place to go for an abortion, that 
um, the pro-life movement would have no way of influencing what people uh, d- chose to do. I noted that one California lawmaker, for example, is working on mandating state colleges to have abortions ready for students, uh, apparently at NOS, and there's a Senate bill uh, calling for that very thing. What impact has the uh, the pharmaceutical abortion had on the issue and uh, the pro-life movement's ability to influence those who would contemplate abortion? Well, it's, it's interesting. I've actually been reading a lot about um, the abortion pill just in, in the past month or so and the developments that have been happening Um, I will have to say, welcome social media. I mean, we have a, we have a society now where essentially nothing is really private. Um, and that's frightening in some ways, but it's also providential in some ways because now we have, you can order an abortion, a set of abortion pills online without a doctor's prescription. It's, it's out there. Um, and so it becomes this very, uh, it seems like a very private thing, but again, what we've been talking about this whole time is getting involved in your community, having those individual conversations, being engaged, whether it's social media or whether it's your church or whether it's your school, that's always been the most powerful way to fight abortion. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't change because the procedure has changed um, and these pills are available. It's still about individual women um, and they need people to care about them. And that doesn't change. Yeah, that's so good. Now, let me ask you how we can pray for you, of you as you have undertaken this position of leadership. I have been a good friend of Gail Atterbury for many years, and I know that there's a, there's a weight that goes along with uh, this kind of, of responsibility. How can we pray for you? Oh, I, I would love to have prayer for um, being a, a good manager. Uh, we have an incredibly wonderful, dedicated staff, and um, I want to be the best boss I can be to help them do their job. Um, and I think just protecting my family mm-hmm. um, and uh, also just, I think, health-wise, uh, it's not just me, but several others. There's been a, a lot of health issues, and uh, I I think that uh, prayer for that would be would be great. Those are three things that I can think of. Oh, excellent. Well, I want to thank you, uh, not just for talking with us here today, but being willing to take on that the role of, uh, of leader. And I look forward to many conversations in the future. And once again, want to encourage our listeners to join the uh, Memorial and March at Pioneer Courthouse Square here in Portland on the 14th of January, which is a Sunday for the Roe versus Wade Memorial and March. Starts at two o'clock with the program beginning at 2.30. Thank you so much. Thank you, Georgie. Bye-bye. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Clark Hilton is engineering. James Blend is producing today's program. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Deanna Wallace. She is Americans United for Life's staff attorney. We're going to talk about Planned Parenthood's latest annual report and what it tells us about its priorities and whether or not there are other means to serve the uh, the needs of women across the country that do not involve Planned Parenthood. Deanna Wallace will join us later in the five o'clock hour. Well, 2018 began with a feud between President Trump and Steve Bannon, who uh, apparently is quoted in Mike Wolf's new soon to be released book, Fire and Fury, Inside the Trump White House. Ari Fleischer, who was 
the White House press secretary for former President George W. Bush said of the president's response to excerpts from the book from the book rather that have been released. The book is forthcoming. I have never in my life seen a reaction like this. He was speaking uh, on the daily briefing on Wednesday. Donald Trump just blistered Steve Bannon. Well, Fleischer, who served as the press secretary under the previous administration, said he expects Bannon to deny that he made the comments which were released as an excerpt from the soon to be released book Fire and Fury inside the Trump White House by Michael Wolff. Bannon then is going to say Michael Wolff made it up. Then it's going to be uh, go to Wolf, and Wolf is going to have to show tape recording or proof of it. That's where this is uh, going to go. But boy, it sure is uh, juicy, quoting from uh, Ari Fleischer. Not a good way to start the year when there's a lot to be done uh, and uh, uh, the president's um, influence and capacity to uh, to influence in Congress is uh, is significant. Meanwhile, former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort and his legal team, they're suing special counsel Robert Mueller and Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, alleging the Russia probe has gone beyond the scope of the special counsel regulations, according to an 18-page civil complaint filed with the district court in Washington. The investigation of Mr. Manafort is completely unmoored from the special counsel's original jurisdiction to investigate any links and or coordination between the Russian government and individuals associated with the campaign of President Donald Trump, end quote. In October, Manafort and his business partner, Rick Gates, pleaded not guilty to a 12-count indictment that included allegations of money laundering and making false statements in connection with the work, uh, their work, rather, in Ukraine. Well, the complaint continues, those alleged dealings had no connection whatsoever to the 2016 presidential election or even to Donald Trump. Manafort's legal team is asking the court to hold those actions unlawful and set them aside. Well, Manafort's legal team alleges the uh, deputy attorney general went beyond his authority to appoint a special counsel as well as specific restrictions on the scope of such appointments. At the time of the May 2017 appointment of Mueller, Rosenstein said, it is in the public interest for me to exercise my authorities and appoint a special counsel to assume responsibility for this matter. Well, Manafort alleges he's been injured by the investigation, causing him significant uh, a reputational harm has exposed him to invasions of his personal privacy and has forced him to incur substantial costs and expenses to defend himself. Well, asked uh, the Justice Department and Special Counsel's Office for comment, there was no immediate response. Catherine Herridge uh, is an award-winning uh, chief intelligence correspondent based in Washington, D.C., uh, and when she pursued uh, more information about this from Mueller, there was no response either. Um. The special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation of the Russian meddling in the 2016 election and possible collusion could fracture in multiple directions during the 2018 and take its toll on both men. Um, For Trump, a prolonged probe could mean a slew of unwelcome headlines, but Mueller still faces withering scrutiny for staffing his investigation with lawyers and FBI agents who demonstrated a political bias. The special counsel's investigation into Russian interference in the presidential campaign has been constitutionally deficient because of a lack of oversight. That's a quote from Tom Fitton, president of the government watchdog group Judicial Watch. The special counsel is operating like the king of the Justice Department. There is no check on him whatsoever, uh, he says, uh, speaking to the Daily Signal. Trump has said he won't fire Mueller, but Fitton says, politics aside, Mueller's investigations has been um, irredeemably compromised. Uh, Among the questions raised by those on 
the special counsel's team. Mueller had to remove an FBI agent. Uh, We learned about a couple of weeks ago from the investigation after electronic text messages emerged showing that he called uh, in 2016 for an insurance policy in case Trump were elected. He led the probe of Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server to conduct official business as Secretary of State. The agent uh, recommended that the then-FBI Director James Comey change his statement about Clinton's habitual use of the server from the legally weighted grossly negligent to the more broad, extremely careless in describing her conduct. Trump fired Comey in May. Justice Department lawyer Andrew Weissman became a rather before joining the Mueller team probing the Russia matter, praised former acting Attorney General Sally Yates for defying a Trump order to enforce his restrictions on travel from terrorism-prone countries. Weissman remains on that team. Nine of the 15 publicly identified lawyers on the Mueller team are Democrat donors, giving a total of $62,043 to uh, Democrat candidates compared Uh, with other team lawyers giving $2,700 to Republican candidates. Of these, three gave a total of $18,000 to Clinton in 2008 and 2016 presidential campaigns. One lawyer on the Mueller team, Jenny Reed, defended the Clinton Foundation charity and also represented Hillary in the email case. Another, Aaron Zebley, represented a Clinton aide who managed the email server. Judicial Watch recently filed a lawsuit under the Freedom of Information Act to find out whether Mueller communicated with his fellow former FBI Director Comey before his Senate testimony in uh, June, following a report the two had closely coordinated on the testimony. Comey admitted during that testimony that he leaked information in hopes of spurring appointments of a special counsel. Mueller's goal is the prosecution of the President of the United States, Fitton told the Daily Signal. If he can't get President Trump, he wants to get his family, and if he can't get his family, he wants to get his aides. Well, it goes on from there. Uh, The uh, probe has produced some results so far. Mueller's team secured indictments against Paul Manafort. We talked a moment ago about the lawsuit about that. Trump's campaign manager for several months and Manafort associate Rick Gates on money laundering and other charges. Both men pled not guilty and are charging now that it's unrelated to the initial calls for the probe. Mueller also reached plea deals with Michael Flynn, a former Trump campaign aide who resigned after only a few weeks as national security advisor and George Papadopoulos a low-level foreign policy advisor on the Trump campaign, both admitted to lying to investigators. Much of the criticism of Mueller seems political, says uh, Scott Amy, who's a general counsel for the Project on Government Oversight, one of the watchdog groups that supports a new law to protect Mueller and future special counsels, saying a lot of Republicans stood behind special counsel Mueller's investigation when he was named. Now that the investigation is going on and some of the courts, uh, some of the counts, rather, against people formerly associated with the Trump campaign or administration, they're afraid it will affect the administration and maybe trickle down to them during the midterms. I think that's a somewhat naive analysis of the opposition. But he went on to say that he believes Mueller's team should be subject to oversight just as any government entity is. But he said the removal of uh, the one FBI agent shows the team has addressed staffing controversies. There are certainly questions that could be raised about the scope of Mueller's work and his prosecutorial team uh, that can be resolved through proper oversight by the Justice Department and from Congress to ensure it stays on course. But of course, the Justice Department appointed Mueller. And so there's some question as to whether or not the Justice Department is the right um, way to go as well. So the mess continues into 2018. Are you are you praying for uh, those in authority? We're pretty much charged with doing that. Because it seems to me they need wisdom, discretion, self-control. The list could go on and on and on. And we have access, direct access to the throne of grace. In fact, we're invited 
to approach the throne of grace boldly and that we uh, are invited to come and make our requests known to bring before the uh, uh, the Lord of glory, our concerns and the needs of this republic, um, not just as citizens of the United States, but as ambassadors of Christ, that ultimately what happens would aid the um, expansion of the kingdom and the work that God has appointed us ultimately to do. So I hope you're spending time in prayer. And if you've made uh, New Year's resolutions, that you would resolve to spend more time praying for those in authority, that we would be able to live peaceful uh, lives and do the work of the ministry. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 18 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, it's been some days ago, but the United Nations General Assembly overwhelmingly voted to condemn President Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. The 128 member states of the UNGA voted to condemn the move, with just seven other countries, so seven other states rather, joining the United States and Israel in voting against the resolution. There were 35 abstentions. Well, the vote was taken shortly after the U.S. Ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, uh, issued a strong warning to states who support the resolution, reminding the General Assembly of the financial aid Washington provides to both the U.N. and many member states. She said, we will remember it when we are called upon once again to make the world's largest contribution to the United Nations. And we will remember when so many countries come calling on us and uh, they so often do to pay even more to use uh, to more pay even more rather and to use our influence for their benefit. She added that uh, the vote and this was a couple of Thursdays ago will make a, dif- uh, a difference on how America looks at the U.N. and on how we look at countries who disrespect us in the U.N. and this vote will be remembered. Well, the resolution was co-sponsored by Turkey, chair of the summit of the Organization of Islamic Cooperation and Yemen, chair of the Arab group at the U.N. Haley, uh, uh, both uh, from the floor, both countries uh, from the floor of the General Assembly and on Twitter drew sharp criticism from supporters of the resolution who accused the U.S. of intimidation. Uh, this is bullying, said Turkey's uh, uh, prime minister or minister of foreign affairs. The U.S. may be strong, but it does not make you right. Well, Trump's decision, which was announced earlier this month or earlier last month during a speech ordering the State Department to begin moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, rankled many in the global community. Although the process will take a minimum of two to possibly three years, uh, it uh, was designed to move things forward. Whether or not uh, that will be the result we remains to be seen. But I wanted to mention that in the context of a conversation I'm going to have on Tuesday, January the 9th, with Rich Jones, who is the pastor of um, Hillsborough Calvary Chapel. And we're going to talk about the significance of Israel's capital being Jerusalem and the events that have uh, been taking place over the last couple of weeks. We're going to talk about this U.N. Uh, vote, and we're going to uh, take a look at it from a biblical perspective and whether or not uh, it has anything to do with what we understand uh, the scriptures have to say on the subject. So I'm looking forward uh, to that. Again, that will be on Tuesday the 9th. Then we're probably going to talk for a full hour on uh, what the scriptures say about uh, Israel, Jerusalem, its capital, and uh, whether or not we can uh, derive any understanding from what uh, the president announced um, just a few weeks ago with regard to the United States recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's capital. In that same uh, context, the president has uh, 
threatened to cut off U.S. aid to the Palestinian Authority, acknowledging his push to broker peace in the Middle East had stalled. He said uh, he uh, appeared to threaten to cut off the U.S. aid in a pair of tweets. He said the U.S. pays the Palestinians hundreds of millions of dollars a year and gets no appreciation or respect. They don't even want to negotiate a long overdue peace treaty with Israel. He infuriated Palestinians and Muslims across the Middle East when he announced uh, late last year that the U.S. would consider Jerusalem the capital of Israel and move its embassy there, upending decades of U.S. policy and igniting protests. Now, in all fairness, every president uh, for the last uh, three or four administrations have all said, when I am elected, that is precisely what I intend to do, and then they don't do it. This one said just that in his campaign, as they all did, and now he's made the announcement um the only one who's uh, who's done so so uh what uh, what happens next um while the palestinians haven't closed the door to a potential deal with israel the leader mahmoud abbas said the announcement had destroyed trump's credibility as a middle east peace broker calling the decision a declaration of withdrawal from the role it has uh, played in the peace process well the tweets marked a tacit admission by trump that his decision to move the embassy Uh, in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem has thrown a wrench into his administration's plans to restart the peace process between Israelis and the Palestinians, which he had dubbed the ultimate deal. He tasked his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, with uh, restarting that effort, brought his former attorney, Jason Greenblatt, into the White House to lead the negotiations. His Mideast peace team had held meetings with Israelis, Palestinians, and Arab leaders for nearly a year ahead of the expected peace proposal. Whether or not this uh, puts an end to it and this threat to, to to cut off aid to, from the Palestinians will have an influence uh, remains to be seen. But that is where things stand. And again, on Tuesday, the 9th of uh, January, Pastor Rich Jones will uh, join us to talk in depth about uh, what this all might mean in light of what the scriptures have to say about Israel and Jerusalem. Well, the husband and wife baking team has to pay $135,000 in fines for declining to make a cake for the wedding of two women. Oregon's second highest court has ruled on the 29th. A three-judge panel of the Oregon Court of Appeals upheld a decision by the state agency that led to the fine and forced Aaron and Melissa Klein to close their bakery. The court ruled that baking wedding cakes is not speech, art, or other expressions protected by the First Amendment. Now, keep in mind, the Supreme Court has taken up a case, one of four, that may have an impact on uh, whether or not this is speech, art, or other expression protected by the First Amendment. But in the Oregon case, the judges said the state did not impermissibly burden the Klein's right to the free exercise of religion because it compelled the Christian bakers only to comply with a neutral law of general applicability. Hmm. Oregon law prohibits businesses from refusing service because of a customer's sexual orientation as well as because of race, gender, or other personal characteristics. We're very disappointed in the court's decision. Michael Berry, Deputy General Counsel at First Liberty Institute, represented the Kleins, uh, said in a phone interview, I think that punishing people for their religious beliefs is not American and it's wrong. Well, again, the Supreme Court will ultimately decide whether or not that is the case. It does not matter how you were born or who you love, one of the lesbians Uh, said in a statement following the ruling, all of us are equal under the law and should be treated equally. Oregon will not allow a straight couple only sign to be hung in bakeries or other uh, stores. Uh, Former White House counsel to President George Herbert Walker Book argued the case, uh, the Klein's case. Uh, Gray told the three judges that the state violated the two bakers rights to free speech, religious freedom and due process. They did not accept that um, that argument. But whether or not the Supreme Court does so, We'll have to wait and see. A decision in that case is expected late spring or early summer.
Church is suing the U.S. government for funds to rebuild after Hurricane Harvey received some good news at the start of 2018. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, has revised its policy to make churches eligible for federal assistance following a disaster. In the very first line of the 200-page-plus guide for FEMA's public assistance program, the agency explicitly clarifies its new stance, welcoming churches and other religious facilities that offer public services. Private nonprofit houses of worships will not be singled out for disfavored treatment within the community center's subcategory of public assistance nonprofit applicants, wrote Alex Amparo, assistant administrator of FEMA's Recovery Directorate. FEMA cites last year's major U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Trinity Lutheran Church of Columbia versus Comer, in which the high court decided that a church could not be deemed ineligible for a public benefit, in that case, grant funding to resurface a playground, solely due to its religious nature. In light of the Trinity Lutheran decision, FEMA has considered its guidance on private nonprofit facility eligibility and determined that it will revise its interpretation of the aforementioned statutory and regulatory authorities so as not to exclude houses of worship from eligibility for FEMA aid on the basis of religious character or primary religious use of facility, states the new 2018 policy. Well, because FEMA's public assistance program is offered to organizations providing public services, It has previously deemed religious facilities, along with political, athletic, vocational, and academic buildings, to be ineligible. It specifically barred organizations that sponsor religious activities, such as worship, proselytizing, religious instruction, or fundraising activities that benefit a religious institution and not the community at large. Well, that policy kept Texas churches, who suffered damage during last year's Hurricane Harvey, from seeking disaster relief grants. Three uh, congregations sued. Harvest Family Church versus FEMA challenged the federal policy as religious discrimination. Well, their case is pending before the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, as well as the Supreme Court, but the church's legal counsel is celebrating the development. By finally following the Constitution, FEMA is getting rid of second-class status for churches. That's a quote from the attorney with the Beckett, uh, David Bloomberg, a leading legal group that defends religious liberty. We will watch carefully to make sure that FEMA's new policy is implemented to provide equal treatment for churches and synagogues alongside other charities. Just like charities, houses of worship that serve our community and are impacted by natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey and Irma, hurricanes rather, should not be disqualified from disaster assistance simply because they are religious in nature. I'm pleased that FEMA is taking this important step to include houses of worship into its list of eligible entities for aid, end quote. Well, a pastor of Highway, that's H-I-Way Tabernacle, one of Texas churches that sued, said he was relieved that FEMA will start treating us like other charitable groups. Within a week of Harvey, Stoker's Church housed dozens of displaced Texans and distributed 8,000 FEMA emergency meals. The new guidelines add houses of worship open to the general public as an example of eligible facilities and removed religious descriptions from the list of exclusions. Well, the revisions follow Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito's request that FEMA respond to the Texas churches, according to Beckett. President Trump, who visited Houston area churches in the wake of the hurricane, had previous backing from the congregation's case, tweeting churches in Texas should be entitled to reimbursement from FEMA relief funds for helping victims of Hurricane Harvey, just like others. The policy also opens the public assistance program to other houses of worship, including a pair of synagogues that uh, sued after they were flooded by Hurricane Irma. 
So FEMA has uh, reversed itself. Well, two years after deciding to leave the Mennonite Church USA related uh, disagreements over same-sex marriage, a conservative-leaning group of nearly 180 churches made their split official at the start of 2018. The biggest um, Mennonite Church USA's 25 conferences, the Lancaster Mennonite Conference, has rallied support uh, following its decision to end its 46-year affiliation with America's top Anabaptist denomination. Since 2015, 29 uh, congregations rather have joined the Lancaster Conference. About uh, half of them came from the nearby Franklin Conference, which also voted to split from the Mennonite Church USA, according to the Mennonite World Review. Based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, most of the conference's congregations are located in the Northeast, but the group is expanding geographically. Conference moderator L. Keith Weaver uh, said that in the coming months, 14 Mennonite congregations in the Domin- Dominican Republic are also expected to join. Eight congregations that formerly belonged to the Lancaster Group ultimately wanted to stay in the main denomination. They joined another conference, which remains part of uh, MCUSA prior to the split. The conference departure cuts overall membership by about a sixth, according to 2016 figures. 31 minutes after 5 o'clock. Up next, we'll talk with Deanna Wallace. She's with the Americans United for Life. Uh, She's a staff attorney. We'll talk about Planned Parenthood's latest annual report. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're waiting uh, to reach Deanna Wallace with Americans United for Life. She's a staff attorney, and they uh, recently reviewed Planned Parenthood's latest annual report, offering some insight into what that tells us about the necessity of Planned Parenthood for all the things they tell us they do as opposed to what they actually do. I'm not sure we're going to be able to reach her. It's after hours, and she's not responding to her number. But if she uh, if she is reached, we'll break in. And, uh, and talk with her. Well, much of the southeastern U.S. was slammed by a brutal winter storm today with Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina seeing a pretty rare blast of snow and sleet. It's the worst snowstorm to hit some cities in decades. In fact, we heard earlier during the news report uh, there are Floridians who have no idea what to do with snow, uh, with sleet. They've never seen it before in their area. Forecasters have warned the same weather system could strengthen into what they're calling a bomb cyclone as it continues to travel north on the uh, east coast the storm could produce strong damaging winds possibly resulting in downed trees power outages coastal flooding that's according to the national weather service at least 16 deaths have been uh, blamed on dangerously cold temperatures that for days have uh, gripped widespread areas across the united states from texas to new england Floridians in Tallahassee saw snow for the first time in 28 years, hence the comment earlier. She had no idea what to do and had never seen anything like it firsthand. The National Weather Service said they recorded five inches of snow and significant accumulation of ice in Charleston, South Carolina, according to the Uh, Georgia-South Carolina state line, the Weather Service reported 1.2 inches of snowfall in Savannah. Those are the highest accumulations recorded in either city since uh, 1989 when uh, uh, Charleston uh, saw a record 6 inches of snow. Savannah 3.2 inches on the same night. It's second highest snowfall on record. Some Floridians took the snow in stride, others not so much. Well, I know we had our little brush with snow. I went to church on the Sunday morning right before Christmas. I guess it was Christmas Eve. And uh, I noticed there was some freezing rain, but we uh, we weathered the storm. In fact, we went for the first time to the, the church that Art Azurdia pastors. He's uh, from Western Seminary, Trinity Church, and enjoyed a, a wonderful Christmas 
uh, message there. Just a really um, thriving uh, young church. Um, got back to the to the car, noticed it's pretty slippery, and we thought, well, this is this is probably going to lighten up. And for my family, traditionally on Christmas Eve, we get together. When I grew up at the House of Prayer for All Nations, the church I grew up in, we always had our Christmas program on Christmas Eve, and then afterward there would be an exchanging of gifts among the kids and. Uh, my father, I think I've mentioned here before, as we were driving home, we would always, and this reminds me of the movie, A Christmas Story, we would always beg him, Daddy, could we get Chinese food? Could we get Chinese food? Because on Christmas Eve, that was pretty much the only restaurant that would be open were the Chinese restaurants. And you knew that if you went straight, you were going straight home. There was no Chinese food. If you went right, you were going to the Golden Dragon, which was my family's a Chinese restaurant of choice. You would walk up a very narrow staircase up into a beautifully appointed restaurant on the upper floor, and uh, we would have uh, Chinese dinner, go back home, and Christmas Eve night, we would actually open our presents. Well, my family has maintained that uh, tradition, and uh, so we were planning to go to my sister's home. She and her husband live on a floating home, which means there's a dock that takes you down to where they are. They're just outside of Scapoos, and as the weather continued to Uh, To worsen, there was freezing rain, there was snow. It became abundantly clear that it was not a good idea for us to try to make that trek to Scapoose. And then, with our arms full of gifts, because everybody, we exchanged gifts and everyone would have uh, their arms full and high chairs and all kinds of stuff. It was a bad idea. It was so discouraging and disappointing to me. But we had, you know, just a day or two of cold, slippery weather. Uh, what they're experiencing in these other areas will put that um, put our complaints to shame. But we've had our little bout uh, much lighter than what we saw a couple of years ago, and we had quite an accumulation of snow. So I can't complain too much. As a result of our postponed uh, vacation, or rather our postponed Christmas, it ended up that my nephew, who serves in the U.S. Navy in Bahrain at this time, uh, was able to come home for Christmas, but not at Christmas. He actually showed up after Christmas. And because of the delay in our celebration on Christmas Eve, we actually celebrated Christmas on New Year's Eve with my uh, nephew and his wife. And so the whole family was there. This was the second time that we uh, celebrated a delayed Christmas and my nephew was able to join us. The other time you might recall, um, he was going to come home in February and it was the first time that he had been away from the family Uh, for Christmas um, in his entire life. And so we decided, my husband and I, Dan Rice and I, we hosted Christmas that year. So we left our Christmas decorations up until February when he came home on leave. Uh, Christmas lights on the house, the whole nine yards. We had the Christmas tree, everything. And he came home and we celebrated Christmas just like we would have on uh, on Christmas Eve. And and so it was just a, a happy accident, shall I call it? No, not at all. It was providential that we would be able to share Christmas together on New Year's Eve. So the other thing that I've uh, been uh, pondering is when to take the Christmas lights down. Now, Clark, do you still have your Christmas stuff up? Are your decorations still up in your home? Are the lights on? Or do you take yours down right after Christmas or right after New Year's? What's the practice in your family? I've completely surprised him. Up or down? Are your Christmas decorations still up? Yes. And will you? do you do the lights and all of that until Epiphany? Yeah, that's what um, we've decided to do. Uh, in the past, I think we were just lazy, but now that we've connected it to an actual meaning, we're going to leave our lights on and up until next weekend. So anyway, there you have the uh, the tale of uh, the Rices and 
and Christmas. Anyway, the weather is uh, pretty tough in the southeast, and while the kids are probably loving it, uh, the grown-ups who have to try to navigate and uh, protect the kids and take care of all the stuff, they're, uh, they're not having quite as much fun. Well, uh, tomorrow, I apologize that we weren't able to reach Deanna Wallace. She's with Americans United for Life. She's a staff attorney. And they uh, recently, uh, I wish James had brought me back my my notes on this, but uh, they recently reviewed uh, Planned Parenthood's uh, annual report. And it was very telling about the kind of work they actually do. When there's controversy, they always emphasize the fact that they are providing services to uh, to women um, that uh, is apart from abortion. But the truth is uh, the affiliates provide services uh, far less than 1% of the American population in areas other than abortion with its client numbers dropping every year. So they're, uh, they're useful in those areas less and less um, every year. And the report, according to Americans United for Life, demonstrates that um, uh, you can provide safe and holistic health care uh, to women without Planned Parenthood because that's not what they're providing. They're essentially providing abortion. Anyway, I hope uh, hope to uh, maybe reconnect with her at some other point. Well, coming up, we're going to talk a little bit about some of uh, the luminaries of the Christian faith that we have lost in 2017. It uh, reminds me that uh, those of us who remain have a responsibility and the privilege of stepping up and being faithful uh, followers of Christ and using the gifts that he's given us. Their names, for the most part, didn't appear in the uh, national news. There was no headline announcing that they had passed away like some of the actors and uh, performers and politicians, but these are men and women who were truly great in God's kingdom, and their reward far exceeds uh, their name in print, names rather in print. So we'll talk a little bit about that and also let you know what's coming up uh, for the remainder of this week. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you didn't hear me say it earlier in the program, I just want to say Happy New Year. Looking back over 2017, there's a lot I'm glad is behind us. But of course, 2018 being the new year, we're looking forward to good things. I was reminded of a scripture a friend of mine wrote to me in an email just earlier today out of Isaiah 43:19. That was an encouragement to me. You know, I took the week off between Christmas and New Year, and it was wonderful to fast from all of the news. And Quite frankly, during that period, there's a lot less of it. Uh, but to just spend less time following what's happening and what where the rabbit trail of a particular story is likely to go, um, and coming back into the office, turning the computer on, and all of the other resources that occupy most of my day, I was reminded of you know things sort of uh, picked up where they left off, and we move forward with what's uh, what's happening, what's not happening, what should happen, what we're sorry has happened, and all of that. But a friend in an email and unrelated. To subject wrote to me and included the scripture Isaiah 43:19 and I've adopted it as my scripture for 2018 as it's not going to be the same old thing that God is at work and he's about his business uh, doing what is in the uh, the kingdom's interest and for our good Isaiah 43:19 said see I am doing a new thing now it springs up do you not perceive it I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland when it seems hopeless like we pretty much can predict what's going to happen next because because uh, things seem pretty bleak. God is doing a new thing. And while Isaiah, it's a specific reference, I think it is a reflection of God's character and his hand at work in the affairs of men. So I'm encouraged in 2018 uh, and what um, what we're going to have the opportunity to do as things get challenging. It's going to give us greater opportunities.
opportunity to shine uh, as lights, which uh, the scripture says we are. And as ambassadors of Christ, it gives us greater opportunity uh, to share hope for those who desperately need it. Also, looking back in 2017, I was reminded of some of the luminaries we lost in that year. And as I thought about the fact that these uh, these individuals have gone on to their reward, the thing that we know is in our future uh, when life comes to an end and we uh, spend time in Jesus' presence. These are people who wouldn't come back if they had the opportunity. I also got a little excited to see what leaders God would raise up and is already developing to take their place. Doug Coe died in 2017. His humble faith in the halls of power uh, made him a man of significant influence in Washington, although his name may be unfamiliar to most. His fellowship is uh, the force behind the D.C. discipleship and the National uh, Prayer Breakfast. He was a, a man of some considerable influence, but again, the New York Times, the Washington Post, they didn't run stories about him, but he was uh, instrumental in uh, helping to disciple new believers, to uh, bring men and women of faith together and those who came to faith together around God's word for study, and then a time of prayer acknowledging that this great republic is dependent on and desperately needs God's wisdom and health. Also, in 2017, we lost H. Wilbert Norton. He taught Christian colleges to care about missions. He was a Congo missionary and Ted's uh, Wheaton and RTS educator. He organized the first Urbana conference. Some of you uh, may have been at that conference or those that followed, but he was responsible for that. H. Wilbert Norton. In 2017, Peter Berger went on to his report. He was a prominent sociologist of religion. His work made all the theologians just want to be sociologists when they grew up, according to uh, Kate Shelnut, who wrote about his uh, life and death in February of 2017. We also lost Haddon Robinson. He was a champion of biblical preaching. The seminarian who taught and inspired decades of expositors goes home to God. That's the headline that Christianity Today had in their gleanings uh, segment. Jeremy Weber wrote about uh, his passing and the influence this great man of uh, letters and a man of faith had on developing those who lead and teach the Bible throughout uh, the country. And then there was the uh, Pakistani, or I should say the Pakistan Mother Teresa. She was not herself Pakistani. She was a Christian. She was honored with an historic funeral in 2017. I believe this was uh, back in... If I can find the uh, the date back in July of 2017, she was a medical missionary. She helped curb leprosy outbreak in. Uh, she was the first Christian woman to receive such an honor from Muslim, uh, from a Muslim government, and she uh, was honored with an historic funeral and uh, recognized uh, in a way that no other individual who was not a Muslim had. Uh, been honored in that country. Uh, Again, her name was not one that many people would be uh, familiar with, and yet she left an indelible imprint on a country uh, that uh, would reject Christianity outright, uh, but whose uh, life was spent ministering to them. And my guess is many came to faith as a consequence. Then there was some Michael Cromarty, uh, the church ambassador to Washington, he uh, passed away in August. 20. He was a leader in Washington, D.C. He's remembered for his integrity, his friendship, and his bridge building between Christians and the media. He helped to kind of uh, create a, a way of communicating that was uh, constructive and uh, meaningful. He passed away in August of 2017. Robert Jensen was uh, referred to as America's theologian, the lifelong Lutheran and ecumenical leader, shaped a generation with new scholarship on the Trinity, salvation, and uh, systematics. He uh, passed away in August of 2017 as well. 
Um, Nabil Qureshi. He was the author of Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. In fact, it was one of the Christmas gifts I received this year. He was a popular apologist. Uh, he f- fought a year-long battle with stomach cancer. That ended. Uh, he was a protege of... Um, His name has just escaped me, but he was a protege of uh, a great apologist whose name will probably come back in just a few moments. And I'll try to to, Ravi Zacharias is the name I'm trying to remember. In any event, a very surprising uh, premature death from our vantage point. But he, too, has gone on to his reward. And again, you can read more about uh, his life, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, a fascinating story. I'm looking forward uh, to reading the book. Um, David Mainzi uh, from Canada, he was uh, considered Canada's top. Trusted televangelist. Now, some might consider that an oxymoron, but there are trusted televangelists. And in Canada, apparently, David Mainzi was one of them. Uh, the late 100 Huntley Street broadcaster told generations of viewers every day that Jesus loves you. Uh, and if you are in Canada, you are familiar with him and that ministry. Uh, also in 2017, we lost God's Smuggler and the Cross and the Switchblade co-author John Sherrill. He was a charismatic writer and a guideposts editor. He was remembered for his uh, spirit-filled stories. He passed away in September of 2017. Uh, Harry Blameyers, the C.S. Lewis protege who rediscovered the Christian mind. He was an influential theologian, author. He lived to be 101. Uh, He lived to see his popular book remain in print throughout those years. Uh, He passed away in September of, or rather December of 2017, in fact, early December. And finally, R.C. Sproul, the Reformed theologian who founded Ligonier Ministries. Um, He was a Presbyterian Church of America leader. He influenced generations of Christians. He filled the gap between uh, Sunday school and seminary. He passed away uh, in uh, early December as well. These are some who worked uh, tirelessly in the field, if you will. They've gone on to their reward and left to us who remain to be faithful to the charge that God has left on us to use the gifts that he's given us to be good stewards over the time, the talent and the treasure that we uh, we still have. And um, their legacy, I hope, will influence us all uh, to continue as faithfully as they had. Well, taking a look at the remainder of this week, tomorrow I'm going to talk with Jeremiah Johnston. He's the author of Unimaginable, What Our World Would Be Like Without Christianity. Now, there's a debate going on as to whether or not Christianity has been a benefit to society in general or a a detriment to society. His book, Unimaginable, is one of several that uh, uh, attempt to put into context the impact that Christianity for good has had on Uh, Not only this culture, but the world. We'll talk with Jeremiah Johnson tomorrow. And then we're also going to share the uh, Salem Radio Network Year in Review 2017. That's I'm looking forward to uh, giving you an opportunity from the perspective of a station, this one, to review the year 2017. So that's coming up on uh, on tomorrow's program. I hope you'll. Uh, you'll plan on tuning in. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program and for um, all that he does around here. James Blind for producing. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. It's been about a week and a half since I've been here in the studio behind the mic, but it's always good to return and um, to not only look at the headlines, but to look up uh, at the one who oversees the affairs of men and to find hope in uh, in him, despite what's going on here down below. So thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show. 
and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.